0: He kō i pūrangi te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui, I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this hour Changing World podcast from RNZ. Tonight we are focusing on coral. But put away that thought of brightly coloured sunlit tropical reefs, because two-thirds of the world's corals live in the deep sea. That's more than 3,300 species of coral that live in complete darkness in temperatures as cold as minus one degree Celsius. They can survive at depths of more than five kilometres. And deep-sea corals are record holders. Meet the oldest animals on Earth. They can live for more than 4,000 years. And yes, they form reefs, although not quite in the style of the Great Barrier Reef, and these reefs provide important habitat for other marine creatures. But although they are at the bottom of the sea, that does not mean that deep-sea corals are immune to human impacts. Fisheries trawling has been hugely damaging, and in the past few years there have been proposals for deep-sea mining and iron sand extraction that could also have an impact. A team of marine ecologists at Niwa are trying to gauge how resilient deep-sea coral ecosystems might be to disturbance, and I'm off to Niwa and Wellington to find out more. First up, I check in with Malcolm Clark to find out more about the environment where deep-sea corals live, especially on the Chatham Rise, which stretches out from Canterbury towards the Chatham Islands
1: things change dramatically once you start moving offshore you don't have a continuous sandy beach type environment which I think a lot of people imagine just extends out under the under the water but coming along the Chatham Rise you have a an underwater topography as complex as on land. it's got mountains canyons but also a lot of flat sandy and muddy seafloor. What you see on the bottom, the benthic communities vary depending upon that that topography. So on the seamounts, the hard substrate, you'll get large colonies of of corals and sponges, often quite spectacular. The flatter, muddier environments, you often don't see a lot above the surface because a lot of the story is is hidden. The worms, nematodes, those types of things hidden under the sediment.
0: But they're there and it's a rich community.
1: They're there. It's a very rich community, very productive, and it sort of fuels a lot of the benthic production that that occurs in in the deep sea.
0: So it's all animals down there, no plants?
1: Correct yes, it's all animals.
0: And that's because there's no sunlight?
1: Yes, once you get below about 200 metres, there's very limited sunlight, no photosynthetic animals, the the phytoplankton which occur in the top layers of the water column, everything below that is pretty much fuelled by the sinking of those plankton and the food web which develops from them So there's
0: a rain of dead plankton and that's what everything depends on?
1: Yes, yep. that's largely what deep-sea corals, for example, feed on. They take this particulate matter out of the water column, filter it and use it as food.
0: Now when I think of corals, I think of tropical coral reefs. Does this coral look anything like a
1: tropical coral reef? In some ways they do look similar, but they're totally different. Deep-sea corals are free-living animals in their own right. They don't require the photosynthetic bacteria which the, the shallow water coral reefs are based on. So these corals in the deep, they don't need sunlight, they just work as feeding, breathing, independent animals.
0: So the depths out there, what's the shallowest kind of depth and what's the deepest kind of depth out on the Chatham Rise?
1: Uh, so the top of the Chatham Rise is at about 300 metres, uh, but then it drops away right down to what we call abyssal depths, which are three kilometres deep.
0: No coral down there?
1: Uh, yes, corals carry on really the type of coral changes often you see images of deep sea corals which can form quite spectacular reef type structures they are often at around 800 to 1000 metres so about around 1 kilometre deep as you go deeper solitary corals still live but they are sparser they don't form these, these large reef type structures which require a denser rain of this plankton from the surface
0: now, speaking of a rain of things, you're working on a project that involves sediment. So can you just paint a big picture for me about what the project is about?
1: As you go offshore, most of the, the seabed around New Zealand is soft sediment. It might seem boring because it doesn't have those spectacular growths of some of these hard substrate animals. But it's the most common environment offshore. And it's often quite muddy. So it's almost as if the seabed is covered by a layer of dust. And like when you walk into a super dusty room, you leave your footprints behind, you disturb this dust. And that's the focus of the research we're doing. Because as you go offshore, down to about 100 metres, the seabed might be disturbed by extreme storm events stirring up the, the mud. Down to about 2 kilometres, we've got fishing activity. So crawling for commercial fish species can stir up mud as well. And potential seabed mining can go down to six kilometres. So we're talking about quite a wide depth range where human activities or natural events could disturb the seabed and create these clouds of sediment. The important thing about the sediment is it's a bit like dust in the wind. It spreads out, as you can see after a storm event and you've got river flows into a harbour or offshore. You get this cloudy tongue of, of water extending way beyond the river mouth itself and that's what happens in the deep sea as well the currents take this, uh, this cloudy sediment laden water over a much wider area and that's something we know very very little about in terms of the effects of that sediment plume or sediment cloud on animals we know pretty well what happens when we put a trawl down the footprint of that trawl damages the animals directly in its path but it also stirs up this mud and that spreads over a much wider area
0: so we don't know anything about how tolerant they might be or how accustomed they are to it?
1: Correct. Near shore, the the animals have to cope with more extreme natural changes anyway with runoff from the, the coast and very turbulent surf-driven environments. In the deep sea, it's normally a more stable environment. We think the animals might be less able to cope with disturbance because they're more adapted to a uniform fairly constant environment but when we come along with a trawl or a mining operation or something else disturbs the seabed that's where our knowledge is very very limited and we're not quite sure how to manage it so the work we're doing is trying to look at thresholds of resilience when animals seem to be able to cope with a certain level of suspended sediment or is there a tipping point when there's too much sediment in the water and the animals can't cope and their survival will be affected, or their health, their feeding rates, their growth rates, that type of thing. And knowing that is important for how we can manage the system as a whole. Knowing when something is at a point where it's going to be bad before an operation is allowed to proceed, or just knowing the area over which our activity is affecting the the wider community so we can feed that into risk assessments, ecosystem modelling, that type of thing, to ultimately give better scientific advice to how to improve the management of of that particular situation.
0: So how do you go about studying it? Is that something you can do in situ, out in the deep sea?
1: The work we're doing is looking at two approaches. One is going out into the deep sea, and we've done, in the last three years, surveys where in the first survey we did survey before we disturbed, so we measured the, the baseline situation, then we undertook a disturbance and we we measured it after that disturbance, went back a year later and measured it again, and also did a, another small disturbance, and then after a third year we did the same thing again, going back and and monitoring it. So we're trying to, to see how things change in the natural environment. That might sound really good, but trying to control and understand what the impact and the effect of that impact is at 500 metres, it's really difficult. So that's where this second element comes in, the experimental work done here in the laboratory. And this is actually quite a... It's not a unique approach, but it's very rarely that the field and the laboratory approaches are put together. So what we're trying to do is get a, an understanding of what happened in nature given that it's already quite variable, we get an idea of, in the real world, this might happen. But that doesn't give us the control that we need to actually say this level of sedimentation is where it goes from good or okay to bad. And that's where the experimental work enables us to control the amount of sediment we're putting in to measure really carefully the animal's resilience, the response, the survival, the health, feeding rates, breathing, that type of thing. So put the two together and we think we've got a really powerful package to to do both good science and also make it as applicable as possible to the real world and to, to what the managers in New Zealand need to improve balancing exploitation and sustainability of the environment.
0: What were your results at from your natural experiments out on
1: the deep? We're still busy working on those. We've collected a lot of data over the three years and a lot of the focus there is on what's happening under the seafloor so looking at the the changes in the worms and the smaller animals that are are burrowing into the sediment so unfortunately it's it's still too early to say what the, the results are because we're trying to look at that time series but hopefully in a year's time we'll have all those data analysed and we'll have a good result.
0: Thanks Malcolm. Now I'm off to meet some of Malcolm's colleagues and some deep-sea coral in a wet and noisy lab filled with tanks of seawater.
2: Kia ora Alison. I'm Di Tracy, I'm a deep-sea fisheries scientist at NIWA.
3: I'm Graham Moss and I'm a marine biologist. So I've got my white gumboots
0: on, I've got some warm clothes on, I take it it's cool in there?
3: It is cool in there, we've got the room at 8 degrees because we have the corals in tanks at 8 degrees and flows so low that we need the air temperature to keep the water at the right temperature.
0: Okay, lead the way. Sterilizing bar
3: And into the dimness. This area is called uh, the marine environmental manipulation facility. It is quite complex. It gives us the ability to manipulate all sorts of factors, so we can manipulate temperature, we can manipulate the pH of the water, and in these chambers we're manipulating the amount of sediment in the chambers.
4: I'm Jenny Beaumont, I'm a benthic ecologist here at NIWA. So we've got control chambers, um, so these are sitting at zero milligrams per litre and then we've got a low concentration of sediment, medium concentration and then we've gone for a really high concentration at 500 milligrams per litre just to ensure that we have gone high enough to to hopefully see a response because we we want to know what the thresholds are, we want to know what the corals can cope with so we're sampling after one week, two weeks and four weeks hopefully this will tell us roughly where the tipping point is, where that threshold is that is really impacting their, their survival and, and their um, physiology and then potentially later experiments we can refine that and look a bit closer into it But, um, but yeah, so we've gone for a really high concentration to really try to, to hit kind of the, ma- the maximum they might be exposed to in, in mining operations or other seabed disturbance events yeah.
3: and you've got water flowing through them all the time? Uh, Yes, we do. We actually have uh, 24 header tanks around the room, so we can run potentially at 24 temperatures or 24 different pHs. So it's quite a flexible system.
0: And
2: we've carried out quite a few ocean acidification experiments in here on various organisms, including deep-sea corals and Antarctic mollusks. But yeah, today we'll be showing you the experiment on a deep-sea branching coral, Gonio Coralla dumosa is its name. Does it have a common name? Uh, well, a stony branching coral. How's that? Yeah. Some people call it a worm commensal branching coral, but yeah, stony branching coral. Um, so there are framework-forming corals, so they form the 3D matrix-type structure that we find on draped over the flanks of seamounts or on the top of the Chatham Rise, smaller clumps of this animal are found on hard substrate, uh, small rocky outcrops, and phosphate nodules, in fact. So those were the ones we sampled for the experiment. We didn't take the ones off the seamount. We took the ones on the top of the rise in about 400 metres. The ones on the seamount have been sampled down to 1,000 metres, so they seem to have these um, different depth environments that they like. This one clearly likes a little bit of sediment in its natural environment, good current movement, you know, to bring the food along um, as they're um, sitting there and the food zooms by, and an ideal temperature, you know, of around 8 degrees on the top of the rise. We call it the Cinderella complex, it's the just right environment. (laughs) So we've located them with our camera system, we've taken a small sample that we can bring back to keep alive in the aquarium to um, carry out the sedimentation experiment. And they don't mind being brought to the surface? No, they don't seem to mind a pressure change because, of course, from 400 metres, you're getting a change in pressure. Um, As soon as they land on the deck in our sampling grab, we immediately put them into buckets of chilled water that we've kept waiting uh, in 8 degrees, quickly put the lid on so they're straight away into the dark. We then transfer them into our onboard aquarium Uh, into tanks there just to hold them and let them settle until we get back to port. And then we uh, brought them back and transferred them into this system here so they were held in the dark, settled down and fed uh, until we were ready to start the experiment. Hmm. So they're doing well here? We can show you the controls. So they're looking pretty good and healthy. Yep, Nice clean
0: water controls.
2: You can see on these little pink polyps still got the tentacles extending yeah. from the corallite or the polyp. So how thick do these corals grow? A basketball size plump on the top of the rise, but if you were looking at them on the seamounts they would drape further down the seamount flank and cover a wider area a metre or so. But on the top of the rise they seem to just be these basketball size clumps attached to the um, hard substrate.
0: So you've just got little
2: bits of it? Yes, we broke up those colonies so that we had enough samples with enough live polyps on it to do the experiment over time. So we've been removing samples as we go uh, to do respiration experiments, look at their breathing rate to see how they respond to that sediment stress. And then we've removed some for the genetic work. And PhD student Valeria is taking some samples um, throughout the experiment to look at the histology, uh, to look at how that sediment might affect organs within the animal itself, that we wanted to see how they would respond to sedimentation. And we're looking at the coral health. So almost a month on, you can see that the pink tissue is starting to retract from the branches. Usually those branches are quite pink. And on the samples that we look at that we've exposed to the sediment, that pink tissue is disappearing. They are losing that senenchyme. It's the pink tissue that supports a structure, the calcium carbonate branch, to give it strength. With ocean acidification, that branch might dissolve. So it's a bit like osteoporosis. Uh, You know, it's calcium carbonate. It's affected by changes in uh, pH... Uh, for the sedimentation, we're also seeing that tissue tissues disappearing, retracting from the polyp area. But the polyps themselves still had fleshy tentacles visible in our images. Um, but yeah, over time they're starting to uh, respond. So they're
0: all a the little stressed, but the ones with more sediment are
2: more stressed? Correct, correct, yeah. At the moment, we are seeing the uh, tissue retracting from around the corallite or polyp area. So in our images, we're seeing that change in coloration. Um, And for the respiration, we're seeing the respiration rates declining over time. So we've got a nice plot to show those results. So that's all we're seeing at the moment. We've had two experiments going. One for the PhD student um, was looking at pulses of sediment. And this has been just constant sedimentation. So we've got two methods now we can compare but they're pretty robust. They're a lot more robust than I thought they would be. But, of course, once you get into the really high sedimentation concentrations, you're seeing them not doing too well.
0: So is that a realistic high sedimentation load that you've got there? Is that something that you know they might encounter out in the wild?
2: From out in the wild it would be low level, but from any disturbance, uh, from a trawl or from a... Mining or mineral operation, you, they would be exposed to a lot higher sedimentation. So that's what we're trying to tease out.
0: Have you just done coral in this, this kind of experiment?
4: No, we've also um, looked at other taxa. So we've had some done some experiments on um, shallow and deep sea sponges, and also on some juvenile scallops and some dog cockles to look at their responses. And, and so far. Those animals have actually been more tolerant to sediment than we were expecting. We've seen some responses, but been surprisingly tolerant to in, the, in the short-term four-week experiment. Um, but I think the corals are probably looking less tolerant. I think they're, they're showing a greater response so far in our preliminary data. It's only early days. We haven't analysed the data yet, but different animals respond differently.
0: Thanks, Jenny. I've got one more person to meet at NIWA, Jarrett Billowich.
5: I'm working with the molecular biology team here at NIWA, uh, which consists of myself and Sarah Seabrook, and we're interested in studying the bacterial community, which is found inside the corals that we're studying.
0: So these corals have a microbiome, just like I have a gut microbiome.
5: Yeah, that's right, exactly, they do. They have a natural microbiome, so they have a natural community of what you could call healthy um, microbial organisms. What we're hoping to to look at is to see if there's any kind of a shift. So whether
0: subjecting the corals to sediment is a bit like exposing a human being to antibiotics, it shifts the dynamics of what's going on with your microbiome?
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're putting the corals under uh, presumably what could be considered to be a, a lot of stress, and then we're looking at how they respond to that stress through their microbiome, which is sort of an indication of the health status of the coral itself.
0: So that microbiome, you're identifying it through genetics?
5: Yes, yes. That's the easiest way to to identify them or to characterize a very broad community. So all we can do is look at the, um, the signature of the bacteria that's there by detecting their DNA.
0: Have you done it pre-sediment? Do you know what their natural bacteria community is like?
5: Yeah, we, so we take a baseline measurement at the start of the experiment and then we track the microbiome through time as they're encountering this, this sedimentation um, stress.
0: Has there been work done like this before? Do you have any sense of what you might find?
5: Uh, work on sedimentation for corals, as far as I'm aware, is, is a relatively new thing. There has been a lot of study of coral microbiomes around the world uh, and in international locations, uh, so it's quite a hot topic right now as far as using it as a, as a proxy for, for coral health. Um, so it's been used to examine the effects of things like uh, climate change, pollution, as well as uh, other kind of stresses, and it's quite a good way to indirectly, I guess you could say, measure the health of the coral. So what are you expecting? Based on studies that we've seen previously overseas... Uh, It's thought that corals have sort of a, uh, a conserved microbiome, so sort of a healthy state. And what we're expecting to see that is that over time, there'll be a shift away from that healthy state. And what that shift will look like is, is sort of the big question. So the idea is that in, in a healthy state, different corals will all look roughly the same in terms of the, the, the community of microbes that they have inside them. But when they become unhealthy or, or stressed, the microbial community shifts but what it shifts to might be different for different individuals or different species or, or, um, or different colonies of coral. So the unhealthy state might not be the same for all corals, but it will be the same in that it will be different
0: so you might end up with a range of yeah, unhealthy states. A
5: range, and then also the types of microbes that become more dominant in the microbiome, you know, which is this community of all these different bacteria, you start to get shifts from more uh, potentially beneficial or healthy kind of bacteria to things that are more opportunistic. Uh, so you get bacteria that were once beneficial that become more pathogenic or you get um, increases in abundance of other bacteria which are just purely pathogenic and are just there in the you know outskirts waiting to to seize the opportunity to take over and obviously the the coral the coral host has a role in regulating um, somehow we don't really know how those bacteria and, and keeping everybody in check but as the stress mounts then the coral loses its ability through through some sort of mechanism, which we don't understand, to keep these these different players in check. And then the, the whole ball ballgame um, just starts to run rampant.
2: With the microbiome work, we had this idea of comparing the microbiome of the Goniocorella corals that are located on a seamount on the Chatham Rise in an area where they're just on bedrock and there's not a lot of sedimentation going on, and compare that natural microbiome in that coral with the microbiomes in the Goniocoralla on the top of the rise in about 400 metres, which is quite a flat area that has little outcrops of rock that the corals attach to. That's a higher sedimentation um, level. So that first tank in the experiment reflects what is on the top of the rise and that's about 10 milligrams per litre. So that would be a really interesting result as well, so not only are we seeing how the microbiome reacts over time in the chambers in our facility, but also how it compares in the natural environment. Yeah, we're going to get lots of answers for
0: you. Thanks, Di. Di Tracy is a marine ecologist at NIWA. We also heard from deep-sea expert Malcolm Clark, technician Graham Moss, benthic ecologist Jennifer Beaumont, and molecular scientist Jarrett Billowich, and they are all at NIWA. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 29th of October 2020. You can listen again and find photos at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash world That website is also where you can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter which delivers story links directly to your inbox. The subscription link is at the bottom of the web page. If you're after some new podcasts, check out the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz why not follow us on facebook and twitter where we are rnz science many thanks for your company stay safe and catch you next time namahi botox cosmetic auto botulinum toxin a fda approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if botox cosmetic
5: is right for you